Let's continue in prayer as we were praying that song. Let's continue together. God, we do come to you just as we are. We are broken. We are messy. We are in great need of grace. And so, Lord, we thank you that we, when we run to you as our Father, um, we, we actually find great welcome. And so, Lord, thank you that you don't turn us away, that you love us no matter what, and your grace abounds. And so, Lord, give us uh, wisdom and clarity as we work through uh, the scripture this morning. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, we continue our journey through Songs in the Night. Uh, We started this a few weeks ago, and uh, so thankful for the gift of the Psalms and how they minister to every part of our lives and all of our emotions and the different things that we uh, feel and go through. But the Psalms help us understand our emotions and the things that we go through from a biblical viewpoint. So um, we just don't come away feeling better about ourselves. We come away directed towards truth, and the truth then helps us understand how to navigate our emotions and our feelings and how to handle the difficult circumstances in our lives. So we're going through this journey of really, it's a discussion on discouragement, heavy discouragement, and even depression. And there's a number of ways that that can settle into a life, and I've mentioned that a few times. I I do understand that sometimes there are chemical imbalances and all kinds of things physically going in our lives that have a dramatic Uh, impact on how we feel and those kinds of things. This series specifically, though, is dealing more with the spiritual aspect of those times of heavy discouragement and depression. And we talked about just the trials of life and many times just the weight of the, the ongoing pain and suffering that we all experience that it weights us down and, and it, it's become so overwhelming at times that our feelings of discouragement and, and really even depression just, they come out. And, and it's right for them to come out in a proper way before the Lord. And we call that lament. It's, a, it's really a, a biblical song of, of sorrow. Um, but it doesn't leave us in, its, in our sorrow. It points us to our God. It, it takes us to the point of trust. And so there have been many over the last few weeks that have expressed just um, great help from the scriptures as we have talked about these things. And I realize, and this is a tension in my heart because um, I, I don't want anyone to ever leave a service discouraged. And I realize these things are really heavy. In fact, one author described it as really discussing in a minor key uh, these uh, areas of lament from the scripture. And, and, and really, at times in, in a church life, there should be a balance. We understand that the Christian life is victorious. Jesus did uh, conquer the grave, and we have great hope. And, and so we do live uh, in victory, and we do have great hope. Um, but at the same time, we have these feelings and these emotions that really are affected by the way that we experience life and even our own choices, as we'll look at today. And, and so how do we navigate that? How do we live knowing that we are victorious, but navigating what is coming out of our hearts and what we feel on a regular basis? And so that's the balance. So even in our songs, we, we try to keep those balanced. And so there's great hope in the gospel, but uh, a connection to what w- the reality that we are feeling and experiencing. 
And so I hope that you will stay with me on this journey because today we're going to move toward those times of discouragement and depression when it really is our fault. When it's our own choices that have brought us to that point. And we experience the effects of sin in our own lives. And it's not a super popular message today to talk about sin. If you take just Christianity in general, the broad scope of it, um, when you talk about personal sin and personal accountability, it's not really one that, that everyone's like, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Everyone loves to hear how bad they are. But I think it's really important for us to understand the personal responsibility in some of our feelings and emotions. I think the Bible clearly shows us from start to finish that we are sinful. We need a Savior. God provided the Savior. But until we see him face to face and we're like him completely, we will still struggle with sin. So our response is to continually go low in humility, acknowledging our sin before holy God and living a life of repentance. I firmly believe that. And so in this part of the journey, I want us to focus on, and I hope you will stay with me, because um, even uh, this week it has expanded. I was hoping to get through the whole Psalm 51 today and realizing I'm not going to. And so now it's going to be two weeks of Psalm 52, and then like the companion psalm of Psalm 32, which really is how blessed is the one who is forgiven. It's that theological grounding of, of the forgiven life that we have in Jesus Christ, and I, I don't want to miss that aspect. But we're going to spend three weeks really dealing with our hearts along this line of when it is our personal responsibility, when it's our own fault that we have found ourselves in a place that we are severely discouraged, even sometimes a feeling of depression. So please hang with me. We will try to end with gospel clarity and great hope each time, but I think it is important for us to really think about these things. So if you have not turned already, would you turn to Psalm 51 as we take some time this morning to think about it. Psalm 51. This psalm is really a portion of David's story. We've caught a few of those already in the last few weeks. But it's a portion when he was wandering. Remember, we started the morning with, Come thou founts of every blessing. But it it says in there, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. So we see David here writing in a season of his life where he has been wandering away from God. And he is explaining to us how God in his grace has brought him back to a place where he is running back to God. He's running back to the Father again, again, and again, as we heard that song a few weeks ago. And really, this whole series is hopefully pointing that, uh, the, us to that direction, where we will continually run to the Father again, again, and again. No matter what we're feeling, no matter what we're experiencing, We keep running to the Father. So as I mentioned, it's a little bit different where we find David in this part of his story. We have seen that he's experienced great trials in his life. Not not 
at his, really, his doing. It's not, it hasn't been his fault over the last few weeks where the trial with Saul and things like that, and even Absalom, if, if that was the season of time in which he wrote some of those things. We don't have the exact information about that, but we know that David's life had a lot of pain and suffering, some things that they were not his fault, and that's like all of us. God allows trials into, his, into our lives that, that we couldn't necessarily pinpoint a situation or a circumstance that we could say, you know what, that was our own doing. But in this case, we see that David and his own choices got him in a spot where he probably didn't think he would ever go. And sin does that to us, right? Think about the big picture of David's life. He started so young with such great faith. I mean, he was the one who stood out when there was a great enemy against Israel, Goliath, and he had that strong faith in God. He was known for his faith, and he was willing to to take that faith and put it into action and fight against someone who was much greater than him. He was full of faith, and he loved the Lord, and he served the Lord. But as we see him now, kind of middle age in an area of his life where, and we'll walk through kind of what happened and how he got to this place. But he's, he's kind of in a little bit different spot. He, he's not full of faith during these days and, and he is wandering away from God and he is being very, very selfish. But in the bigger context, we see that that. God restores him from this situation and continues to use him in a great way, so much so that the inspired word of God describes him as a man after God's own heart. So that's the big context of David's life. And I would suggest that that probably describes a lot of us, if not all of us. There are seasons of our life where we are really growing and loving the Lord and serving him. And then there are times when perhaps maybe because of the painful experiences that we go through or questions about uh, the doubts that the enemy would love to throw at us about truth and we start to wander and there's a number of different ways. But then we find ourselves in a place where we just never thought we would ever be there. But we have a father who we run to again, again, and again, who does not turn us away. And he loves us in spite of us, even the worst of us. And we're going to clarify in the scripture what that actually means today. Because it's really easy to look at David in this season of life and point and say, oh, that would never be me. But I don't think that's the point of the scripture that we would walk away with spiritual pride (laughs) about how bad other people are. Pretty sure that's not what God intended. Pretty sure it's supposed to remind us that we're all pretty much capable of the same stuff. We're all made up of flesh. And apart from the grace of God, our sin can take us to places that we never thought we would go. And so we have this wonderful father that we can run to again, again, and again. And so Psalm 51 describes David. Now God had to bring him to a point of brokenness, and we're going to to talk through that. But it, it shows us when one is broken over their sin, what it looks like to run to the father. And when you run to the father, 
what you find in our Father, which is only grace and only mercy. So if you look at Psalm 51, you probably see a superscription there. And in that superscription, it says, for the choir director, or maybe in your version, it says the chief musician. It says a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we have here, and and this is a point of uh, instruction for us to understand as far as this psalm is concerned. Notice it was written for the choir director. Many folks read Psalm 51 and they think this is a very, this was written for personal worship and it's a personal evaluation. While that's true, and all scripture is used for, you know, purposes like that, we should be evaluating our lives according to scripture, we have a a, a specific purpose that David wrote this very personal psalm or song for the purpose of corporate worship. Now think about that. This is David fully transparent. Imagine if we could get to the place where we were just undone and we really didn't care what people thought. We can't do that, really. We, we, we like to say we're transparent. We like to think that, you know, we can create that, but we fear man so much. And we fear the judgment of other people about who we really are. But David here knowing that his sin is fully exposed to the world, he writes this for the whole group of God's people to sing about. So his sin is amplified and proclaimed over and over. To the point even today, we have it as a corporate body today, reading it responsively, understanding this very personal moment in David's life God intended it to be used for the world to see. And I think that serves us well, and and it should push us down the road to transparency. It would be wonderful if we had a church where it was so safe that people could come in on a regular basis and say, I am struggling today. I, I, I am not loving Jesus like I should. This week I didn't honor the Lord. I need your prayers. I need God, as the song said, to heal me and help me. And I'm so glad I'm here. If that was our culture, that would be amazing. And so psalms like this help us understand transparency is a good thing. Now, notice in this psalm, and we will over the next week or so, that he doesn't, tell, he doesn't highlight the sin in this psalm. What he highlights is the brokenness about his sin, and he's really sending us to how wonderful God is, how gracious and merciful God is. I was told years ago, you can tell people that you have feet of clay, but you don't have to take your shoes off and show them. And that's kind of the idea of transparency, appropriate transparency. That you can tell people you're sinful, but sometimes you don't have to like get in the nitty-gritty that maybe isn't going to be helpful for others. Sometimes you do need to get in the nitty-gritty, and it's, it's, it's that crucial and that important. But we have here a psalm of transparency. David here sets a great example for the church along those lines. It's a helpful psalm to really help us understand what 
really repentance looks like. So let's look there in verse 1. As I read it, would you follow along? Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak. David's immediate heart, now that God has, by his spirit, brought him to this place where he was willing to acknowledge his sin, is, is really just emotionally crying out to God for help and pardon. And again, this was probably one of the worst moments of his life, and he is bringing it out for everyone to see. It is his lament. I'm including it in the lament section. Some others perhaps wouldn't, but I think it is a lament. We have an address to God. We have requests. We have expression of trust here. And it's, it's really a song of sorrow. And, it, and it's a prayer in pain that leads to trust in God. So I think it does qualify as a biblical lament. He is lamenting over the weight of his sin. And it is something that, I hope we can all relate to. So what's, what's the big picture? Well, we have here, the superscription says that Nathan, this man Nathan, the prophet, came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So in order to understand this psalm, and I went back and forth on how much to do here, and, and I, do, I landed, we're going to go through it. We're going to go through this story because... I know in our day and age, not everyone understands all the Bible stories that are in the Old Testament. Sometimes people didn't grow up in Sunday school. Sometimes they haven't had the the years of training to study the Scripture. And so we sometimes make the assumption that, oh, everybody understands David and Bathsheba. Well, some people would be like, who is Bathsheba? All right? So let's kind of understand the context for which this was written because it tells us exactly when we find David here. So turn, if you would, in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel. A few books back there. 2 Samuel and chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11. By all human accounts... This story is an absolute tragedy. If you were to put it in modern day, a modern day scenario, you would have probably the, one of the greatest headlines for a 2020 or a dateline. Because when you, when you go through this, there is so much here that reminds us about the world that we live in today that we, because of media, can see it on a regular basis. But we have here a situation, again, David's probably worst point in his life, where he commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. Look at verse 1 there in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. Then it happened in the spring, and there's so much, I won't be able to read it all. I'm just going to kind of skim through it here, that... Um, at the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. 
But David stayed at Jerusalem, it says there at the end. So we have a situation where David probably shouldn't have been here at the palace because it says there when kings normally go out to battle. And so we have a little bit of an indication there. Verse 2, now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And a woman was very uh, beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returned to her house The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. So here's kind of how the story unfolds. David here is is at the palace, probably shouldn't have been. And he um, is in a situation where the evil one tempts him, and he gives in to temptation. And we have that... From this moment of giving into temptation, committing adultery, a ripple effects of this sin that he committed here, he continues to commit many more sins, and that is many times how it happens. And, and we have here where the tragedy just gets worse and worse. Because if you continue on verse 6, um, we have the account where the husband is actually not a stranger to David. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was actually one of David's closest companions. So we have, in other parts of 2 Samuel, chapter 23 and verse 39, we have a description of 30-some men who were part of David's loyal subjects. They were his closest companions. They were, right, they were kind of like his mighty warriors. They helped him probably during those hard days with Saul, to protect him and care for him. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was part of this group. So this is not a stranger to David. So when, it says there, when the one man, servant, whoever it was, said to David, is this not Uriah's wife? This This was something where David sinned not only against Bathsheba, but one of his closest loyal subjects. And then the story unfolds, and maybe you could take some time this week to read it yourself, but David tries to create a scenario to cover his sin where he wants to bring Uriah back from battle and and so that Uriah will spend time with his wife so perhaps the pregnancy would be covered and and he would basically be off the hook. Well, Uriah is a, a soldier with conviction and ethics, and it tells us in this text that Whenever David tried to get him to do this, Uriah's conviction was, no, I cannot, with my men out in battle, with the king not being protected, I cannot go be with my wife. I won't do it. And and even though he had occasion that David arranged, he would not do it. He stayed away from the house to fulfill his responsibility. Well, when that didn't work, David's plan had to get more complex. To the point where David even arranged it so that Uriah's life would most likely be taken in battle. So you can see how the ripple effects have gone. So it starts with covetousness. He wanted something that he couldn't, shouldn't have. To adultery. To then lying. To then murder. 
you can see how <clears throat> the progression of sin, it always gets from, it always goes from bad to worse. That's what it says in, in 1 Timothy. And so here in David's life, again, the worst moment where he, in a sense, because of his own desires, basically did whatever he wanted. Because he was king, he could to protect himself so that he would not have to experience the consequences of what he had done. Now, let me just ask this question. How does this happen in a person's life? How does a person go from full of faith, love the Lord, serving the Lord, defeating great enemies for God and his people, to, to this? Betrayal, lust, adultery, murder. How does one get there? Well, it's, it's like anything that we, when we um, experience the fallenness of our own heart and the, the sinfulness of our own heart, we're capable of the very, very same things. I want to just give you four aspects that I think will help us understand how he got there. I would suggest, number one, he set aside truth. He set aside truth. If you look in chapter 12, go over one chapter and look at verse 9. When asked, this is what was asked. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? So Nathan the prophet got to the heart of the issue. He set aside truth. What was being despised here or thrown away or acted like it didn't matter? That's the idea of of, of despising the truth. Like it's not important, throwing it away. And, And Nathan said, why did you throw away the word of the Lord? What's the word of the Lord? Well, Very simply, I I could explain to us that David knew the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, that that was in the simple aspect of the law. Now, there was a lot more complexity to the law that God gave, and David would have been aware of that. But just the simple law of God that, that God had explicitly given, it says things like, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit murder. So the word of the Lord was clear. How does a person get here? Well, when you take truth and set it aside and act like it doesn't matter in your life, then you can fulfill your flesh and your desires will go to their own direction and their own paths. And so the word has to always stay central. Even the warnings that came along the way, we, talk, we read verse 3 where it talks about whoever that person was who said, is this not Uriah's wife? Like, why would you want her? And then as well in, in chapter 11 and verse 11, even Uriah himself, when David was trying to get him to, uh, David was manipulating and trying to get him to go home, Uriah is even speaking into David's life. How can I do this? I can't do this against my king. I can't go. I cannot, I, cannot, I cannot negate my responsibility. Even Uriah was speaking truth. There were moments here where there was truth surfacing. 
And yet David was putting truth aside. And the evil one wants us to do that. The evil one wants us to take truth and not value it. He does that every single day in our culture. Through all the different voices on social media, as you slide through scroll after scroll after scroll, as you watch show on Netflix or whatever over and over, he, he tries to get us to doubt truth. And when we set truth aside, we start to listen to our flesh and it allows areas where, like David found himself, I would never thought I would have gotten there. Truth must be in the center of our lives. And next week we'll highlight this in Psalm 51 and verse 6 where it says that God desires truth where? In the innermost parts. That's what God desires. So to protect our hearts from these kinds of things, we must keep truth in the inner parts of our heart. David, as it says by Nathan, he despised the word of the Lord. He threw it away. And then we find himself in an absolute mess. But truth in the inner parts is what God desires. Number two, I would suggest that he forgot the goodness of God. Look at chapter 12, and I'll read verses 7 and 8. And and Nathan here is just rehearsing the goodness of God. And, And many times I think we can get to the place where we forget all that God has done for us especially in the gospel, fundamentally in the gospel. Verse 7 says, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Nathan, by speaking for the Lord, says, God saying, I did this for you. I made you king. I delivered you from Saul. And then listen to what it says there. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. That's crushing. From the, the goodness of God, from the mouth of God, as he, through the prophet Nathan, recounted to David, his goodness in his life. I've given you this, and I've given you this, and I've given you this, and if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. So many times in our life, when we are not content with what is right in front of us, and we start to wander away from our God and wander to the things that we don't have. We forget about the blessings in life. And in our discouragement and even in our depression, we can tend to get so earthbound in our thoughts that we forget all of the glories of the gospel of what we have been saved from and the hope that we have of our future, all of those things, even that fundamentally, but God has given us so much more in his common grace, just living in the land that we live in and all of the blessings. They could go on and on and on. The hymn, Count Your Many Blessings. See what the Lord has done. It's like what Nathan is reminding him. He, David forgot the goodness of God. 
And when we think God is withholding from us, our hearts can grow bitter and cold. And you put time on this and circumstances, and we see choices like this being made. Number three, I would suggest that David used people and his resources to satisfy his desires. Think about all the people that David used in this scenario. He used Bathsheba. He used Uriah. He used his servants. And as you walk through here, you you have some of them named. He used the people of God. He used military men who lost their life because of this whole thing. David was in a place of position and power. And so he could use people and his resources to accomplish his own way. And when we start wandering away from our God and loving God as we should and loving people, we start to use them. And that's when people start getting hurt. And the ripple effects go on and on and on. I would suggest, number four, that he was hard on others and easy on himself. He was hard on others and easy on himself. What do I mean by this? Well, in chapter 12, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but Nathan uses a parable when he comes to David, and he describes a situation where he's really describing David, but David doesn't see it. And how David responds to this, that there was a man who, who took someone's pet sheep. It talked about the, this, this man that valued the sheep and he, he cared for it and it grew as part of their family. And, and there was another man that came and took it. And when, when David heard this story, it tells us there in verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And look what he said. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. This man took a sheep and David was willing to execute him. Now there was a penalty in the law for taking someone's sheep. He had to restore that four times. So there was a penalty and David probably knew that. In fact, I know he does because in the text he says, and he will restore the man four times. But he wanted to kill the man. For stealing a sheep. And in the whole way, he missed the fact it was him. Until Nathan looked straight at him and said, Thou art the man. And the Spirit of God broke him. You know, it's easy for us sometimes to identify the sin in other people's lives. And we're kind of easy on ourselves. We can actually get real judgmental about others and ignore the fact that actually our own hearts are full of selfishness and pride. But we can be real quick to go against someone else. So how does a person get like this? Well, when truth is set aside... When you don't rehearse the goodness of God like we talked about last week. When you start to see what you have been given as something that you can use to justify and satisfy yourself instead of love and serve. And then as well, 
when we don't really have an accurate view of ourselves. We're really hard on others, but we're light on ourselves. And so we have this story where David is at the worst place in his life. And God sent Nathan as a gift to him. And that gift came in the form of confrontation. And when Nathan confronted him, the response from David is very clear. I have sinned. The Lord got hold of his heart in his grace. In his mercy, God brought David to a point of brokenness. And that's what God wanted. We read it in Psalm 51, and we'll, we'll rehearse it next week. What God desires, not sacrifice, not all of our things we can do for God. He wants a broken and contrite heart. That's what he wants from his people. He knows that we are sinful. He knows we are messy. He knows that we are in places that we never thought we would go. That's clear to him. He's got the wide open view of our hearts. What does he want from us? He wants us to continually turn to him for grace and mercy. That's the response. That's the point of the story. Not how bad David was. We're all that way. In fact, some of you, let me just talk to you for a moment, because some of you have condemned David. And you've, in your own mind, said, I would never do such a thing. That would never be me. And so you look at Psalm 51, and you know that it's perhaps from this context of David's life, and, and you actually read it with eyes of like, oh, that's, that's nice, but I really don't need that. Again, it, it goes back to that idea, we're really, really good at, at looking at ourselves and thinking that, that we are better than we are. And we're really good at judging others. And some of you read the story and you're like, where is the justice here? Uriah died? Yes, he did. Those other men died? Yes, they did. The child died? Yes, the child died. And those in this room who like you have this streak in you, like you've got to make all the wrongs right. And you want to see every villain just completely penalized and judged. You've condemned David. This shouldn't be right. He got to remain king. Can I remind you what Jesus said? And remember what Jesus, he's like the word. <laughs> you, can't, you can't argue with his words because he is the word incarnate. And what he said in Matthew 5 was that when you look upon another person in a lustful way, you are actually committing the act of adultery. So lest any of us think that we stand here, can we be honest? We have the same heart. Jesus also said, if you have anger in your heart, Matthew 5, 21 through 23, if you hold anger, you are as committing murder. 
So how many people did you kill this last week? Let's be honest. And those are the real bad ones on our lists. We have the same capacity to sin. The law actually crushes us. Someone called me this week and they were um, starting a Roman study and, and they were trying to understand the law as Paul describes it there. And so we were walking through the first seven chapters and, and I was just reminded the purpose of the law was to crush us. To get us to the place where we realize we can't do it in and of ourselves. There is nothing good in us. And David will say that in Psalm 51. In sin was I conceived. There is no good in our hearts. We have no ability apart from the grace of God and the love of Jesus. We are just, we are David. But we're real good at saying, oh, we would never. I actually don't think that's honest because we do. We hold anger and bitterness in our hearts over things that have happened to us, over things that have happened to those who are close to us. This summer, God exposed a lot of bitterness in my heart. A lot of bitterness. Bitterness that I've dealt with through the years. Like, I've confessed many, many times. God, I'm bitter about this. Help me put it away. And it just keeps coming back. Bitterness about things that happen. When I was younger, things that happened to my kids. And when things happen to your kids, it's hard to forgive people. And when you're bitter, when you're angry, you can go places you never thought you would go. And yet we think we're, we're good. We're not like them. We are just like the rest of them. David just said, I've sinned. Like, it's me. And Psalm 51 is a glorious passage about what that looks like in the heart. God, be gracious. Show me your loving kindness. Show me your mercy. It wasn't about the sin. He knew it well. It was about the pardon. And he found it by running to the Father. Which is why we run to him again, again, and again. Because we're not there yet. We're not fully redeemed. And so he wants from us a broken and contrite heart. David experienced the consequences of his sin all of his life. So those of you who thought think he got off, early, got off easy, it's a matter of opinion. His child did die. 
he fasted and prayed and wept for a week, so much so that those around him thought he was going to die himself. He didn't get to build the temple. His household, as it says there from the prophet Nathan, that the sword would never depart from it, and his belongings would end up being, becoming someone else's, and all that happened. He felt the weight from a circumstantial, and sometimes that happens. His life, it was never the same. But when you read Psalm 51, it wasn't about the consequences. He wasn't complaining about how God judged him. He just wanted God's presence. He knew the consequences. I'll take them. He didn't. He didn't want to miss the presence of God. When's the last time you were at a place so honest where it was like, God, I got to have you in my life. Like, you can't go away from me. Is that rarely there? That's where he wants us to be. He wants us to be so honest about our hearts that we just daily beg him to be near us. And as a father, he comes running to the prodigal. So in our mess, we run to the father. And the coolest part about this story, God is a covenant-keeping God. And God promised David that his line would never end. And the greatest most glorious part about a man in the worst place of his life. David had another son. And then that son had a son. And you follow the line all the way to the son of God. So those of you who were like condemning David just a few minutes ago in your mind, Somehow God in his grace chose to use him to bring the Son of God into this world. God chose David's line. As messy as he was. To bring forth the one who would actually take care of it all. And in Jesus, the Son of God we find redemption. So we come in conceived in sin, dead in our trespasses and sin, and God, by the merits of Jesus Christ, makes us alive into salvation. We don't, I don't get that. Because, y'all, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve his grace.
But if we will turn from ourselves and look to Jesus as our only hope, he saves us and he keeps us all the way to the end. So we repent coming to him and we repent going to him. It's a life of repentance. It's a life of God, it's not about me. It's about Jesus and Jesus alone. It was when I came to know you, and it will be until the day I see you. Our only resource is Jesus himself. So we must, we must look to Jesus. And I think it's healthy and it's good to have regular evaluation of our own sinfulness. Because it should drive us to him. So we keep truth in the center. And we stay focused on God's goodness. We love others, we don't use them. And we preach the gospel to ourselves. We don't look at other people's sin and justify our own. We preach the gospel, and the gospel tells us we are nothing but Jesus. Would you take a moment just to perhaps start? I know it's not possible in 30 seconds. But perhaps start what I would ask us all to do over the next two or three weeks. To do serious evaluation of our lives. Would you just maybe start the prayer like this? God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. God, would you give me a broken and contrite spirit before you today? Take a moment of response and then I'll pray. God, you tell us in your word that when we go low, when we humble ourselves before you, the spigot of your grace flows freely in our lives. And so God, help us to be a people who repent. Not so the focus is on ourselves and how bad we are, but so the focus can take us to you, Jesus, and how wonderful you are. And how rich your atonement is. God, would you help us as we continue this journey through fighting feelings of discouragement and depression, would you help us to be honest about our own lives? Are we content with what you have given us? No matter if it includes pain or hardship, we're content because we trust that you're good. Lord, we need you. Lord, as we sing these songs to you, would you strengthen and encourage us in the gospel as we leave. In your holy and precious name I pray, amen.